Remember, like I decided to go into recovery when I was the highest I had ever been, because it's like, that's the time when you're thinking the clearest. So like, you're totally open to like maybe getting some help. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Max Tuttleman. Max is an investor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist who's focused on studying and developing cannabis products. He's currently a fellow at Thomas Jefferson University, where he studies how cannabis can be used to treat withdrawal symptoms from opiates and alcohol, and his brand, Bouquet CBD, recently released hemp oil ice cream. In this episode, for the first time publicly, Max shares his story as a former opiate addict and how a simple painkiller prescription thrust him into addiction. I found myself purchasing opiate painkillers in West Philadelphia in Kensington. And I was like, you know, if I use again, I feel like my heart was going to explode. I could feel it like beating through my chest. He'll take us through what it's like to have your brain rewired by opiates and how after getting clean, he immediately made it his mission to help others trapped by these drugs. Governor Rendell walked me into a meeting with Mayor Kenny and we said, like, listen, there's this problem going on. People are dying and we need to figure this out. And you'll hear what he's doing now to combat the crisis, which includes funding city initiatives, advocating for programs, and even just going to the library and researching it himself. And I found the old recipe for this water-based extraction method. You know, I felt like I was kind of onto something. All this and more of Max Tuttleman's Philly story, now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. Also, there is some cursing in this episode. So I've had some pretty energetic guests on the show already. And if you think about it, you kind of expect the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia to be type A personalities. But of the 30 interviews I've done so far, Max Suttleman is the only one to get so into what he was saying that he literally got up and started pacing the room. And he even warned me ahead of time that there was no way he could sit still for an hour and that he'd be up and about. But I wasn't really surprised because I had seen his resume, which suggests that his brain just operates in a different gear. Here's the list of things that he's currently doing and doesn't include the initiatives he's moved on from. He's the managing director of the Tuttleman Foundation, the director of global growth strategies at Gabriel Investments. He's the chair of the board of Recycled Artists in Residency. He's on the boards of Mural Arts, Fringe Arts, and the Philadelphia Police Foundation. He's a Thomas Jefferson University Research Fellow, and his company, Bouquet CBD, makes hemp oil products. But when I first heard of Max, rather than noticing his first name, which describes the capacity at which he operates, I recognized his last name, having spent four years taking classes in Tuttleman Hall and growing up seeing IMAX movies in the Tuttleman Theater at the Franklin Institute. And while Max doesn't think too much about the fact that his family's name is so often seen around the city, he does appreciate the reminder of his grandfather, Stanley Tuttleman, and what philanthropy meant to him. He grew up in West Philadelphia, uh, very poor, poor Jewish family, uh, right in Parkside, on Parkside Avenue. Um, he went into the army for World War II and actually won some money playing poker and then, you know, took those poker winnings and used the GI Bill and bought some sewing machines and tried to like make something of himself and like take advantage of that American story. And, you know, I asked him, I said, so why did you like 
give these gifts to put your name on the building. And he's like, well, I wanted to show that it's possible for anyone to do it. That if some poor Jewish guy from West Philadelphia can go into World War II, can like fight through in North Africa, can fight in Italy, can come back here and like try to build a business for himself, that it's like possible that anyone can do it. And you know, he did it to show that anyone can make anything of themselves in this country and that, you know, we are all so fortunate to live here and like be a part of this society and be a part of this democracy. And, you know, I really took that to heart. And, you know, the, like we, the foundation doesn't do any more named gifts. Um, you know, we're purely programmatic funding now. But, um, yeah. So you, like me, went mm-hmm. to Temple University. I did. You were there for, was it eight years? I, I went to Temple University for a while. I'm actually still enrolled as a student there. <laughs> School for me, man, was never normal. I was a troublemaker growing up. Yeah, what do you mean by normal? So there's this doctor that talks about these two types of learners, hunters and farmers. And farmers can do a task every day repeatedly. They can go forage. They can go harvest. They can do whatever, you know. And, you know, your hunters are your people in the tribe that go out and are like have to hunt all the time and like are responsible for catching the meat and really like providing for that society. And, you know, this doctor went into this village of Inuit tribes, and he's an ADD, ADHD researcher. And he went into this village of Inuit tribes, and he sat down with the village elder after watching everybody for a while. And he's like, okay, so these are your people in your tribe that have ADD and ADHD. And he picks out, like, all the future chiefs and all the greatest hunters of of the clan. And, you know, it really said something that, like, there's definitely two types of people in this world. Someone that can like get up and go to a nine to five job and like get up and go to school every day and sit there in a classroom and learns like that. And then someone that just like, I learned by reading and by doing, I'm like an autodidact to the extreme. I could never sit still. I mean, through this interview, I'm going to be walking around pacing this room. Like, <laughs> So, but well, you still hung around Temple, though, t- taking classes. Well, yeah, of course. I love learning. I'm a, like a lifelong, infinite learner. Like, so you're just not into the whole, like, this is your major track. You graduate. This is the path. You're just like, let me take this class. Let me take that class. Yeah, bureaucracy is always an issue for me. And, like, the jumping through hoops to, like, fit into their mold of a student. And, like, you have to do this, this, and this, and this. It's like I'm much more of, like, a blow-up-the-system guy. Like, take what I can from it and try to, like, adapt and learn. I have... Double the amount of credits I need to graduate, all elective credits. I really should go back and do it. It's actually like, I'm not proud of it at all. Like, I don't think it's like, I think if anything, it shows like an inability to kind of like focus in on things kind of and like almost like bring something to completion, which is also hard for me. You know, I'm very good at like getting things up and running and moving. But then at the end of the day, like, you know, I know I need to hand things off to someone who can like you know, take it for the long game. Yeah, yeah. I'm really good at really quick upward learning curves. But then once I hit the top of that learning curve... On to the next. On to the next thing. You took the reins of your family's foundation when you were 20 years old. Well, I don't think I took the reins. Like, I kind of, you know, I saw it. I'm good at seeing opportunities and squeezing my way in. (laughs) So tell me the story. How did you squeeze your way in? How did I squeeze my way in? Well, I just saw that, you know, there was this gift really that was left to like my generation of my family and to my father and to my uncle and to my aunt 
into my cousins and I thought that we had this ability to do great things with it. So I just started advising my father and my uncle and my family on like what could be good, you know? And, and how did you choose what could be good? By going out and exploring the city and learning about issues that were going on here and really like starting to dive in and see like, okay, what's making this city tick? What's like, what gears are getting clogged? Like what's clogging them? And really trying to dive in on like a micro level. You know, like we talked about earlier, like, you know, large grant making when you give like millions of dollars to a university, like at the end of the day, that does like a lot of good in like getting something started and getting something going. But like, I, I felt like, you know, I guess that my family had already done that and maybe we could really like dive in and look at like the small granular issues. And if you exactly and like, how can you move the needle with small grants instead of million dollar grants? How can you move the needle with $5,000 with $10,000? Do you invest in how do you invest in organizations? How do you invest in leaders? How do you really like try to find the best way to like expand you know the roi of those dollars at the end yeah. of the day so let's talk about how you got involved in combating the opioid crisis i'm told that you that there was a specific op-ed that you read that really spoke to you well that was part of it um so i injured my knee years and years and years ago and was put on painkillers and like a lot of stories you hear, you know, had like a battle with addiction of opiate painkillers. And going through it, realized how little help there was, you know, even for someone like me who could like afford to like pay for the best help. So you, you got addicted? Yeah, of course. Wow. I mean, you give these substances to anybody, they're extremely addictive, yes. So you found yourself? I found myself purchasing opiate painkillers in West Philadelphia and Kensington, like, yeah. So it was fucking terrible. You know, it really grabs you. It throws you into something that you have no control of anymore. It rewires your brain chemistry. At first, I didn't really understand like the neuroplastic side of it, but like really diving into like that research afterwards and like understanding that your reward centers get totally altered. Like your brain goes on this spree of quickly rewiring itself as soon as you start feeding opiates into it and to the point where it just like doesn't know what the fuck's going on and it's just exploding and firing all over the place and like everything's shutting down at the end of the day. Um, I got help when I was, I think the highest I had ever been. And like, it was a day, I remember it was a late one night and I was like, you know, if I use again, I feel like my heart was going to explode. I could feel it like beating through my chest. And I used again, cause it's like, you can't fucking stop. And I realized like, shit, like if I died, like a, it would suck be like, the people that loved me, like my girlfriend at the time who would have been in bed next to me, like would have been traumatized. Like my family would have been traumatized. You know, this is before all the, like the big death waves, but like, I knew that like, I couldn't do that. So I woke up the next day and started calling rehab facilities and started understanding that it was going to be at least two weeks before I could get into a secured bed at every rehab facility. And I was realizing that like, here I am 
you know, I wasn't going through insurance. I was paying for it cash. And there was this much of a logjam in that if this is the problem I'm experiencing, like, fuck, like the people at the other end of this spectrum have nothing. So, you know, after I went to rehab and, you know, got sober and like really got myself on track, I like really dove into like, I felt like in order to keep myself sober, I needed to like a responsibility to someone else. And like, it was, it was selfish at first. It really was like, it was in the sense of like, okay, I need to keep myself sober. I need to keep myself on track. And in order to do that, like I can't fuck up because if I fuck up in this project that I'm working on, then like more people are going to die. So that's just not fair, you know? So that's kind of how it started. And it started, um, you know, I read, uh, I was started reading about naloxone and Narcan and that like that there's this um, pharmaceutical agent that people can be administered, that if they're overdosing and during overdose, it can be reversed and they can come out of it and they could have the chance to go into recovery. Remember, like I decided to go into recovery when I was the highest I had ever been because it's like that's the time when you're thinking the clearest. So like you're totally open to like, trying new things and like maybe getting some help. So like, I understand, like I saw that that worked for me. So if like that works for me, it could probably work for other people. So, okay. How do you start that? Or like how, what's going on in this epidemic? Well, I see it as like a bridge. Okay. And it's a bridge with cars driving on it and the cars are driving off of the bridge and they're going into the river beneath it. And they just keep driving off in the city at great expense goes in and pulls the cars out and revives the people and makes them good at private individuals and organizations at great expense and cost go in and do it the same thing. And they just do it repeatedly instead of putting up a fucking railing. And you're like, what's going on here, man? And it's like, okay, let's try to find a railing. Okay. What's that first railing? Well, that first railing that you could put up is naloxone and like having some sort of agent around that if someone's administered, it gives them the second chance to like go into recovery. So yeah, I read this op-ed um, by Ed Rendell. Uh, you know, Governor Rendell was very close with my grandfather. He spoke at my grandfather's funeral. Um, and I reached out to him and I was, and it was about Tad Decker's son. And I reached out to um, the governor and I was like, listen, like we got to do something about this. Like I told him my story and he was like, okay, like, you know, this affects tons of people. Like it's a hidden problem. Like we got to really try to address this. So him and I, he, you know, he really helped me. He like kind of legitimized me in a way, okay? So like having that foundation and having that name gives you a little bit of a sway, but like at the end of the day, like who's to listen to me? What do I know about harm reduction? I, I Like we said, like I didn't finish college. I don't have a PhD in population health management. Like, you know, what do I know? So he kind of legitimized, I had a, I have an idea, okay? And an idea of, that could work and like I'm willing to try to put it into action by paying for it. So I went to him and they said, okay, let's go to the city. The police aren't currently carrying naloxone in the sense that it's not on every officer's belt. And I believe all officers now have it in their vehicle thanks to this grant we gave. But um, Governor Rendell walked me into a meeting with Mayor Kenny in his administration and they, they brought out everybody, the full team. 
And we said, like, listen, there's this problem going on. People are dying and we need to figure this out. Like we need to put things in place. And, you know, Mayor Kenny was extremely like he was there listening. He was attentive to it. And he like heard us and he's like, I got it. Like, how can I help? Like my, here's my administration, please work with them. Like they're here to help you. And it's like, it's actually been great. Um, they've been extremely helpful. I've really like, it's been a process and yeah, I gave a $50,000 grant to the city of Philadelphia to provide that to the police department and then really started to understand like, okay, like what else needs to happen? So I saw that, you know, there's not enough recovery beds in this city, which is a huge issue. And, you know, that's a huge long-winded issue that's like I can't even get into right now. But then I saw that, you know, there's still people dying, okay? And they're dying alone and they're dying on the street and they don't need to be dying. And, you know, there's some very innovative programs in some other countries that are a little more liberal than ours, like Canada in the Netherlands that have, you know, these supervised injections. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Now I want, I came into this just planning to ask you like, you know, why would that work? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm already convinced because of what you said about how you think clearer, you know, your brain has just rewired itself. Yeah. So is that the idea? I mean, that was my theory behind it. You know, like it worked once again, like it worked for me. Like why, who's to say it's not going to work for at least one other person. And that's all I care about. If one person's life, if one person can go into recovery, can use this thing and go into recovery, I think no matter how much money you put into it, it's worth it. Like no matter what, like you could pour millions into it and it would still be worth it to prove that it, like this can work for other people. Because if it works for that one other person, like you're only dealing with a really small population here at the end of the day. Like say you blew it out, like it's going to work for other people. And you're just proving a concept, you know, like that's how you prove things in clinical research or in science. So I saw this going on in other countries. And when I first heard about it, I was like, this is crazy, crazy, you know? And then I really started digging into it and I went and I visited one of them and I saw like what it was. When you saw that, were you, I mean, were it's you like, it's skeptical a medical, Of course I was skeptical. What do you mean? I hear that there's a place where people are injecting intravenous drugs. Me, even as someone who had just gone through an opiate addiction, I was never an intravenous drug user, but like it's very frowned upon here in the United States. Like it's because it's been so stigmatized, you know? And it's like, we're not like other countries that do deliver like pharmaceutical grade heroin, which like if we had pharmaceutical grade heroin here in the United States, we wouldn't have an overdose death crisis like we do because it's cheap Chinese fentanyl that's being pumped into this country illicitly that's killing all of these people. But it's a longer story. But, um, you know, so I saw that if we had something like this, then like, okay, then that person, A, wouldn't die alone on the street, B, what if right afterwards, right after they used, you hit them with recovery services? You were like, okay, like now you're feeling better. I could get you into a facility right now and we can get you into a detox program. We can get you into a recovery bed. Then we can get you into like a, a, some sort of step down program and transitional housing. And then, you know, what everyone needs at the end of the day is a job. And that's where this really revolves around is like purpose. And it's like, 
so if you were able to like aggregate those social services all in one place, you know, I saw Prevention Point was doing an incredible job doing needle exchange and, and aggregating services already under that same guide, you know, like you get someone coming in for a clean needle, then they come in and they get a haircut and then they come in and they get some health services and then they sign up for an ID and then they register to vote and then like they start seeing a recovery specialist. Like it's a process. So that's what's intimidating to me as I think about this. So I live in Fishtown, like less than a mile away from the epicenter of this. And, you know, where my house is, you don't really see that stuff. And it's so it's very out of sight, out of mind for me. But when I think about that, I'm just like, oh, my God, that's such a huge problem. Like, how do we even start? And like, I just go back to, you know, thinking about where's the nearest gastro pub? You know what I mean? You know, so it's like easy to turn away from the issue. So, so far in your work in combating this, have you... Have you seen progress? Oh, yeah. In Philadelphia, man, we're making progress. I mean, A, on the sense that it's, people are becoming aware of it. B, in the sense that like things are starting to be done about it. You know, we now see that this, you know, where a year and a half ago when I had this idea for this, you know, safe injection type of facility, like, you know, everyone was saying no, no, no. But then like going and meeting with the right lawmakers and really saying like, hey, like, you know, not asking for permission, but really saying like, hey, I'm doing this because like I feel a duty here. So in, you know, really studying this epidemic and like also having a passion in cannabis, like I started to see that like, like I said, I'm an autodidact. So we have this incredible opportunity here in Philadelphia of having the American College of Physicians and the Mutter Museum uh, Historical Library. So you can like go in there and like dig through their archives and find all these like crazy medical journals, all these crazy research things that were done in like the 1800s, back when like you could do really crazy stuff. So I went into the Mutter Museum and found this study on cannabis oil was being administered to opiate addicts and to alcoholics. And it was reducing their cravings for opiates and for alcohol. And then I was like, okay, like how is this being done? And I like started like researching and found the apothecaric recipe that was used to extract the oil. So I wanted to find the method in which they used. You know, back then they were really used only using like ethanol-based extraction, so using alcohol-based products to extract the valuable compounds off, or they were using like a water-based extraction. And I found the old apothecary recipe for this water-based extraction method, and it was actually very similar to one that I have licensed and used in my product line. You know, I felt like I was kind of onto something. So I now have a fellowship on can in cannabis research, and my study is on you know using cannabis therapies to relieve opiate withdrawal and cannabis withdrawals. And I'm going to try to recreate this study over in Israel, where I do a lot of like my cannabis research due to like regulatory restrictions. Like Israel has been doing cannabis research for 50 years because you know they haven't had the stigmatizations that we have here in the United States. So, you know, it really transitions like into like it brings like all of these things that I'm passionate about together. So now I'm finding ways where cannabis therapies can be applied to like help relieve the opiate epidemic. And, you know, you're seeing the state of Pennsylvania was the first state in the nation. Rachel Levine is 
one of the greatest secretaries of health, the greatest secretary of health in this nation. <laughs> and, you know, she has like, and she's extremely progressive and she has allowed for cannabis. You know, anyone that now is an opiate addict or in like needs, like wants to try to like get off of opiates using cannabis, like that's allowed now in Pennsylvania. If you can really um, give cannabis therapies at the same time you're administering opiate therapy, you can decrease the opiate load. Therefore, you know, not make the patient as vulnerable to addiction or to dependency. And, you know, back to this like formulation that I um, licensed with the water-based extraction, I started a brand of products called Bouquet and it's a CBD line. And, you know, there's a lot of CBD products out there. And what I saw was that there's no one really like putting science behind their products and really showing that, you know, like these products are really like safe and are like trying to validate them and really like backing their product with efficacy based science. And I think that, you know, like from the start, you know, my product is manufactured under what's called GMP protocols, good manufacturing practices. And it like allows for it's like the same sanitary conditions that a pharmaceutical drugs are made of. So I have like a lot of patients, like real patients that take my medicine. So you recently released a product alongside little babies that is ice cream with CBD oil. Yep. Why would I eat that ice cream? Why would you eat that ice cream? Well, first off, ice cream's awesome. Well, yeah. Second, ice cream from little babies is even better. <laughs> third. These, these are correct. Third, you know, I think about it as this. Say you finish your dinner, you're sitting at home and you're sitting on the couch. You know, you're, you want to go to sleep in an hour. You want to start unwinding, you know, maybe, you know, you had a like real, like good discourse with whoever you had dinner with. Then you guys are enjoying your ice cream and you just kind of like want to unwind a little bit, you know, and like slow your brain down, you know, maybe you drink, maybe you don't drink, you know, so you, maybe you haven't had the, the two glasses of wine and are feeling nice and loose. So you have some CBD ice cream, it like calms you out and chills you out and you go about your night. Now, CBD is not THC. CBD is not THC. CBD is a different photocannabinoid that is present in the marijuana cannabis plant. Right. And it just, it, so it's not going to give you that psychoactive THC no. type. CBD has no psychoactive effect. And it's legal. It is legal. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, all right. So I'm going to go get some of that and probably have it. Later Highly tonight. recommended. <laughs> so you are in heavily involved in Rare. Rare is Recycled Artist in Residency. Now, how? tell me the story of how you got involved with them. Okay, perfect. So I, a friend of mine, Josh Goldblum, has this company, Blue Cadet. He's a really, really, really smart guy. And he does like digital advertising and digital experiences. And like when I first met him, he was like designing like digital experiences for like the Franklin Institute. Like, you know, you go in and there's like a museum exhibit. And then it's like over a period of time, he's like working with the Smithsonian. I think he just redid like the whole entire Bloomberg terminal, you know, like really, really smart, creative cat. So he had this side hustle like project called Creative Mornings. And Creative Mornings was like this talk series of creative people from around the city that would come and just like give talks about what they did. And one week was, one month was Billy and Stephen Dufala, the Dufala brothers. 
and the Dufala brothers are these cats from South Jersey and they're artists and they're brothers and they're very conscious and they're always like the one the first project I became aware of what they did was called a funeral for a home and they found this abandoned row home in North Philly I believe don't quote me on that and then held this big dinner for the community in front of the block like telling the story of this all their specialty is like waste stream consciousness and like really understanding like the human impact on the environment and like as much as like okay when i am finished with this cup of water and i go throw this in the trash like just because it's invisible to me it still goes somewhere and it's like someone else has got to deal with it and even after someone else deals with it it goes and sits somewhere else and like just because it's made out of paper and has all these fancy recycling things on it like it still takes time to break down and like you know, just understanding like our impact on that. So Billy has this organization, founded this organization called Rare, Recycled Artists in Residency. And it's based out of Revolution Recovery, which is a really, really unique place. It's up in Taconi. It's a recycling center that only deals with like a home demolition goods. And like, so when houses are being demolished, and you're like a local contractor, you bring your stuff down there because waste management is like gouging you. And it's like, once again, like these guys are aware of like all of these like issues. Um, you wouldn't understand the political issues uh, of trash. So Revolution Recovery was started by a friend of mine um, and a couple partners of his. And out of like the back of their pickup truck, they now have like two or three facilities across the tri-state area they're crushing it but like part of what they do in like in order to like give back and like hey we're a bunch of young guys like we know that we need to have some sort of like social consciousness of what we're doing like okay let's house an artist residency program inside of our recycling center and the artist and residency program is only for artists that work out of waste stream so that specialize in found object so they can come into this, there's a residency program where we give them a studio in the recycling center. And then every day they're in the trash heap, seeing everything that comes out, picking out what they want, working on a project and developing a project. And you know, um, we have some incredible staff over there of Billy Dufalo, Lucia and Fern, and they're just like crushing it. And they've built this thing into this like really like international, like artist in residency right. program that at the top for when it was created was the first of its kind in the world and is now like a model for others um we just got a warhol grant um you know it's like these they're crushing it so how did you first get involved how did i first get yeah, involved? yeah so Back what was that. the yeah i saw Stephen and billy speak at Josh Goldblum's Creative Mornings. And then that you it all together. came up to them and said... I, like, I approached them and was like, listen, like, you guys are fucking badass. Like, I want to learn, like, what you guys do. Like, at the end of the day, like, I'm a pretty creative guy. Like, I'm, like, you know, being around creative guys like that that I can learn from and, you like, really understand art. And, you know, it's like I've grew up around art yeah. and, like, and I grew up around found object art specifically another philadelphia guy leo sewell who you can see his work in like the please touch museum it's made about all the little toys so i grew up with a bunch of his sculptures in my house so i think like you know just always having a passion for found object art and like bringing it to that 
And then you know what? It was small programmatic funding that helped Billy do what he was doing at Rare that now helped them get, you know, these large grants. So we had the Pew Foundation supported a bunch of cultural anthropologists coming in and like really digging through and understanding like what's in the waste stream and what's in the trash and what people are throwing away and just like get understanding like the history of it. And it's like a really amazing, unique data collection point. And it, it like doesn't exist. So it's like, I nerd out in it. You were, know? There, were there any early projects that you specifically remember where you saw it and you're like, okay, this is awesome. I need to support this. No, I, it was really the passion of Billy. Okay. So, yeah. oh, wow. So just yeah. in that interaction, you're yeah. like, this is going to happen. Yeah. We need to. Like I said, I, leaders, you know, people like I love investing in people. Like at the end of the day, people are what make change and yeah. make things happen. What is a common misconception about you? I don't know. This is, I was struggling with this one. Um, I guess I don't know or want to know what most conceptions <laughs> of me are. <laughs> um, that's a tough one for me. That's fine. We can yeah. come back to it. We can come back to that. Yeah. So I, it's funny. So this is, I had a conversation with my roommate last night and I was researching you. Okay. And I was like, dude, I'm pretty sure this guy is Philly Bruce Wayne. Because like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to try and convince no. him to change his Instagram handle to Philly Bruce Wayne because like, you know, the way that you just jump into things and, and solve it and like try to fix it. But you know like, I mean? that's like, that's, that's my ADHD. You know, that's like me seeing an issue and saying like, fuck, it's broken. The system in general that's trying to fix it is totally broken. And if we rely on those systems that are in place to try to fix it, it's going to take forever. At the end of the day, the feds and the state and the city of Philadelphia haven't done much. They're not indicting these corners and locking up every drug dealer and, you know, locking up people that are like peddling this at all. You know, they're not really enforcing it too strongly. So to come out and say like, hey, you can't go saving people's lives and enact this harm reduction approach that like, honestly, I feel like is part religious for me in the sense of like, I, there's so many people suffering and like, you know, the 10 commandments say that like, like help thy neighbor. It's like, you know, you've really got to like, look at this as like a humane issue in the sense of like, when governments fail us, it's the responsibility of private citizens and private individuals to step in and to like, take action. People every day fight for causes in the city and are doing incredible work throughout this city. And it's like, we just need to like help prop people up and like help push everyone forward. We're in such divided times and anything I feel like I can do to like bring people back together. Like, you know, I just want to leave this world better than I found it. A for like, I don't have children yet, but like whoever I leave onto this world, but like, and it's because, like, why not, you know? Right. If you could send a message to yourself in the past mm -hmm. at any point, butterfly effect aside, okay, what would you say? Slow down and focus. Yeah? Yeah. What would you say is the most encouraging thing you see about Philadelphia? Oh, I mean, there's so much happening here at once. We've started to build a great, like, startup technology investing ecosystem here. Um, what University of Pennsylvania is doing with personalized medicine and immunotherapy, uh, bringing it back again to like my mentor, Richard Vig, um, you know, he endowed Carl June 
who is he's probably the brightest guy in this city. No way. Yeah, absolutely. So Carl came up with the way um, to adapt CART therapy, which is chimeric antigen receptor T cells. So like you have T cells in your body and your T cells are the ones that go around and like get rid of like the sick cells and like get rid of them. So he mutated them by adding the HIV virus to these T cells and he trained these cells to go out and eat leukemia blood cells. So what they do is they inject these genetically modified T cells that they draw from the patient, they modify them in their lab, and then they re-inject them into the patient. Within three weeks, these children are cured of leukemia. What? They've changed the world at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was like, Richard found this guy and like promoted him. And like, you know, that idea of investing in leaders. And, you know, Richard was telling me, like, when he saw this guy speak, like, he was really struggling to get funding for this research. Like, people were saying he's crazy. And it's like, now it's like University of Pennsylvania just built him this, like, huge genetic manufacturing facility. They're crushing it. They're and that's in Philly. That's in Philly. It's right here. And then, you know, cannabis, what Jefferson University is doing. Jefferson University created this Cannabis Research Institute, the Lambert Center, and they've started aggregating scientists from around the world that do cannabis research and like are creating this hub of cannabis research. So here in the United States, cannabis research has been highly stigmatized. You know, um, the FDA doesn't allow research on level one controlled substances. A level one controlled substance is a substance that's deemed to have no medical benefit. You can't do research on it. So, like, it's crazy, A. It's like, who decides it had no medical well, benefit? Well, <laughs> who decides it had no medical benefit? Like, the pharmaceutical lobby back in the day because, you know, for years they've suppressed whole plant medicine from the start, you know, like, and to, like, come up with concoctions that, like, have now killed and addicted our populations. I mean, you know, there was a... Oxycontin manufacturing facility in Kensington that was making a hundred million pills a month right there on Kensington Avenue. And they hightailed it. They put like $25 million into this building 20 years ago. We're pumping opiates out of there. Three years ago, they sold the building for $1.1 million and moved all of the Oxycontin manufacturing to China and all of the Sudafed manufacturing to North Jersey. Because, you know, they got out early. We've been poisoned by the pharmaceutical industry. Growing up a couple times, I've thought like, you know, you think about all the things that in, in the course of history people have done as, as that they thought was normal, right? So like, you know, in the early um, 20th century, everybody smoked. Um, before that, leeching, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, bleeding, yeah. you know. What, yeah, I think yeah, it was yeah. George Washington died because they were like, he's sick. We should yeah. you know, make him bleed for hours. And then, oh, no, he's dead. And I've always wondered, what's the thing that we're doing today that's going to be like that, where people are going to look back and say, can you believe that they did that? Oh, and I think it might be this. Yeah. I mean, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. I mean, I'm terrified of like what birth control is going to do to our populations. Like we don't have multi-generational studies on like the long-term effects of these substances to, you know, large populations. Like who? knows what these companies have been telling our children, our women, our men to like put into their body. And like, 
you know, not knowing how it affects multiple generations after that on a gene level. Like maybe all of these cancer rates that have been increasing are due to this. Like who the fuck knows? If you had, yeah, <laughs> I love this though. I could, I could do this all day. Um, if you could get one message to every Philadelphian, so on a billboard and a tweet, an email, a text, whatever, every Philadelphian can ponder one message. What would you say? I think I, oh, I don't know. This is, you got some good questions, time, man. man. We got time. I mean, honestly, I know we just had this election, but like, you know, voter turnout in this city has just been like historically low. And we have a city council election coming up in 2019. And all I encourage people to do is to go out and vote and to like really like learn about your candidates, learn about the difference they're trying to make and like really try to like do something because, you know, in Philadelphia, unfortunately, our city council candidates don't necessarily have term limits. Um, and it's a pretty entrenched system over there in the most all of the backlash I've been getting about supervised injections comes from the city council level that at the end of the day are just worried about protecting jobs. You know, you've got people in these jobs that are at the highest political office they're ever going to reach. And just as long as they can maintain that job, they've got a job. So it's they've got no incentive to like buck the system too hard. But in times like now where we've had this complacency for so long we need to buck the system we need new candidates in office and we need like to really try to affect change in this city for more on max you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash max or check the show notes if you like the show be sure to subscribe and give us a rating if you're on apple podcasts you can follow along and get in touch on twitter and facebook at podphillywho Philly Who is a Q9 production with editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and podcast artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Tune in next week.